Judges chapter 10 this morning as we continue in our worship of God, sitting at His feet, listening to Him speak, proclamation of His Word. Judges 10, turn with me there if you are able, if you have a Bible. Last week we covered Abimelech in our series through Judges, and that was the longest chapter in the book of Judges, 57 verses, and he wasn't even a judge. In contrast, this week, the author covers two whole judges in just five verses, as he's laying the groundwork, really, for what's to come in the next few chapters. And so, a little bit different of a focus this morning here in Judges chapter 10. Not only, though, are these judges, the account of them very brief, but I'm also guessing that, you know, you've probably never heard of these judges either. Tola and Yar, probably not, you know, top of your list of baby names, right? <laughs> but they judged Israel at this time as well, and they play an important role in the overall plan and purpose of God revealed in this book. And so, let us now turn and see what the Spirit of God would have us learn from these verses this morning. Our passage is Judges 10, verses 1 through 16. Let's read this and then ask for God's blessing upon the preaching of His Word. Brethren, this is God's Word, Judges 10. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Puah, son of Dodo, a man of Issachar. And he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. After him rose Yair the Galidite, who judged Israel 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. And they had 30 cities called Havath Yair to this day, which are in the land of Galid. And Yair died and was buried at Keman. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and served the Baals and the Asheroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve Him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and He sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For eighteen years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidians, also the Amalekites and the Maonites, oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand, yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. 
Amen. This is God's word. Let's ask for his blessing upon the preaching of it. Bow with me. Our Father and blessed God, Lord over all, we do ask that you would pour out upon us your Holy Spirit, that Spirit who spoke through the wise men who first penned these words. Lord, unfold to us your word and your wisdom and your truth as we read these things. Father, we pray that you would have mercy upon us that we might know you. Through our Lord Jesus Christ we ask. Amen. Well, I hope it's been painfully clear at this point in the book of Judges that this is a narrative that's filled with great conflict. There's been wars, there's been assassinations, there's been bloody murders, there's been systematic slaughter, there's been intertribal and interfamily conflict practically from the very beginning to the very end of this book. In this sense, peace and stability is not at all a characteristic of this period of Israel's history, nor is it you know, a particular focus or uh, um, agenda of the author who's pinning this story for us. Conflict marks judges from beginning to end. However, though, when we come to chapter 10 today, we do seem to reach a period where there seems to be a lack of conflict. Here we find a judge, Tola, judged Israel 23 years And then we see Yair, who judged Israel 22 years. 45 total years then, it seems, with no apparent conflict. With no harassment from foreign enemies. With no statements about God punishing Israel, sending enemies to chasten them. 45 years of peace seems to be a, a monumental improvement in the grand scheme of this book. After all, if we look at this in context, context, we just uh, remember that we just came out of this period with Abimelech, right? Last week, that bloody, awful story. He killed 70 of his brothers systematically. He waged war on his own people, almost started a, a civil war within Israel. So, you know, in contrast to that, and that's where how verse 10, uh, verse 1 of chapter 10 opens, after Abimelech, In contrast to that, things seem to be great here. Peace and quiet. But on the other hand, what exactly is conflict? How do we describe or understand that term, conflict? For example, I kind of shake my head sometimes because the Vietnam War is often called a conflict. The Vietnam War lasted 10 years. Over 58,000 Americans died. Over 1 million North Vietnamese troops died. Over 2 million Vietnamese citizens died. And yet they call it a conflict. That seems kind of a bit of an understatement, right? But it's called a conflict because even though it was a war in the de facto sense the United States never officially made that official declaration of war, and so it's called a conflict. 
So perhaps you can see that, you know, there's a little bit of elasticity to this idea of what conflict really is. It can refer to something that's all out war, but it also can refer to something like, you know, the difficulties a couple may be having in their marriage, right? There's no war, there's no bloodshed involved, hopefully, but we can say, you know, there's marital conflict. And to press this even further, we can have internal conflict as well, right? We are conflicted about how we are to feel or to act. <clears throat> you know, this is like when you ask your wife where she wants to go to dinner, right? Well, I kind of feel like Chinese, but you know, Mexican sounds good too. There's this internal conflict, right? And not really sure what to do. And so conflict can refer to to many things. Conflict doesn't always refer to when there's obvious war or fighting on the outside. So when we come here to Judges chapter 10, it may be easy to think that because there's an absence of war and there's peace in the land, that there's an absence of conflict, right? There's no bloodshed, there's no tribalism going on, so we must think things are good. But the reality is, the waters that are the most still are often the waters that are the deepest. And although there's a lack of conflict on the surface, I believe this narrative portrays some of the worst internal conflict of all. So that's what I want us to focus on here in Judges chapter 10 this morning. Specifically this, there is still a simmering conflict going on within Israel because of her love for idolatry. There's still a looming conflict between Israel and her covenant Lord because of His blinding holiness and righteousness in the face of sin. And more than that, also, there's also a conflict within Yahweh Himself. What to do with a stubborn and stiff-necked people. For the main issue in Israel's story still hasn't been dealt with, and that is how can an infinitely holy God dwell with a sinful and idolatrous people? That's the issue. So four observations this morning as we walk through this text. Four points. <clears throat> four points. The first is this. First thing we see is that the goodness of God is meant to lead us to repentance. The goodness of God is meant to lead us to repentance. <coughs> Excuse me. Here in verses 1 through 5, we see kind of the calm before the storm. And that's why I entitled our sermon that today, The Calm Before the Storm. I mentioned before, Tola and Yair aren't the most well-known judges in this book. They only get a few, a few brief verses in this narrative. But they're, they're pretty big in the grand scheme of things. 
after Abimelech is how the chapter opens. The author is, is right here wants us to see, okay, we're coming out of this. In contrast to all this horrible stuff that just happened, all the chaos, all the murder, all the civil war, right? The nation was in shambles. The nation was on the verge of disintegration. There arose, after Abimelech, Tola. And he says here, he arose to save Israel. To save, in this sense, means really to establish peace and stability. A stable administration, as it were. And so, against the backdrop of Abimelech, this is wonderful and astounding news. 23 years of peace ensued. And not only this, but every other time in Judges, every single other time in Judges where there's a period of peace, what does the very next verse tend to be? Then the people of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. But that doesn't come here. Things are really, really good for 23 years, even after Tola died and was buried. And so right after that, we get Yair, the, the Galidite, in verses 3-5. through five. And we're not going to dive into the details, but on the surface, it should be clear that he's not exactly the ideal judge. Here we read that he had uh, 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, uh, and they had 30 cities. You know, this is kind of, you know, um, reminiscent of the, the, the lust for kingship that uh, Gideon had. Thirty sons, that's a, a kind of a dynasty there in the making. You've got to have lots of wives and concubines to have thirty sons. And, and, and some people say that uh, the donkey was kind of a symbol of kingship there. So maybe they had their own presidential motorcade, right, in the cities that they ruled. And so, I mean, there is, it's clear here that, you know, he's not really the ideal judge. But that's not really what the the author wants us to see. The author is concerned with showing us God's goodness and God's mercy after Abimelech. Israel with Gideon and with Abimelech fell into great sin. They had turned away from the Lord. They had turned against one another. And yet God grants them 45 years of peace. Now some people astutely point out that Um, here it's unique there's no statement that says that God raised up these two judges like it does with the other judges and it's definitely important to note I believe this communicates that there is some distance now between God and his people right and it, it kind of hints at the underlying conflict that's going on here but in the grand scheme of things God is still sovereign he's still ruling over his people And these two judges arose because God is merciful and because His mercies are new every morning. So this is what's on display. God's mercy, God's long-suffering, God's patience, God's compassion, God's infinite goodness. Despite the fact that 45 years of peace is the last thing in the world that Israel deserved. Maybe another way of putting this is God gave them 45 years to repent. He gave them 45 years of mercy so that they could set their house in order, right? And this is where I think it's particularly instructive to us. 
we've considered so many times that God often sends difficulty and suffering and chastening into our lives, right? He makes us weak, we saw. Uh, he, he sends people to, uh, or things to, to oppress us in a sense when we sin so that we, we turn to the Lord. We've seen that again and again and again in this book. But you know what? Sometimes He also sends us peace and prosperity to do the very same thing. That's what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 2, verse 4. He asked his audience there, Do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And then we ought not to just search our hearts and repent when things go bad and the screws are starting to turn on us. I mean, even the pagans sit down and self-evaluate when things fall apart. How much more so also when things are good, when good things happen to us, when we go through seasons of great joy and prosperity and peace and happiness, those undeserved blessings that God gives us. We ought to also let those things drive us to search our hearts Drive us to, to strive to put sin to death and so that we devote ourselves anew to this Lord who's poured out these marvelous blessings of mercy and grace. So that's what I want you to see first and foremost. Just as God uses difficulty and chastening to conform us into His image, He also uses His goodness as well. And neglecting one or the other puts us, puts our souls in great danger. Unfortunately, though, here with Israel, God gave them 45 years of peace and prosperity so that they might repent. But that's not what happened. Secondly, then. Secondly, we see that sin not dealt with eventually breaks out into full-on apostasy. Sin not dealt with eventually breaks out into full-on apostasy. How does Israel respond to 45 years of God's mercy? Verse 6. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They served the Baals, the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the, sons, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve Him. It's a repeated refrain. Shouldn't surprise us. Israel fell into idolatry again. We've seen it so many times already in this book. We were told by the author in the very beginning that this is what was going to happen. But what's noteworthy about this that there's more detail here than any other place in this book. This is unusually elaborate. In fact, it's, it's the worst yet. It's more detailed and more widespread idolatry than anywhere else. Here the author tells us that they served seven total foreign gods. This is no accident. It's probably more than seven gods. 
But in Scripture, numbers uh, carry a, a, a significance a significant symbolism. And the, and the number seven in Scripture symbolizes perfection or completeness or fullness. The point then is not just that Israel fell into idolatry. It's that they fell away intensely, completely, fully. They turned to any and every other God that they could find without restraint. Full-on apostasy. Total abandonment of God in the most emphatic way. This is how they respond to God's grace and 45 years of peace. When we peruse also this list of gods, a few of these things ought to stick out at us a little bit. Here we have them serving the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites. Well, if you will remember, back in chapter 3, it was Moab and the Ammonites who were oppressing Israel to such a horrible extent until Ehud arose to save them. Then we have that they they served the gods of the Philistines. The Philistines were the sworn enemies of Israel. Those are the ones whom Shamgar killed and delivered Israel in chapter 3 as well. It's heartbreaking. Israel's turning to the gods of the people who oppressed and killed and subjugated them. Why would you do that? It would be like if, you know, America turned to Allah after 9-11. Right? That's how you're going to respond? You're going to go worship their gods? But what does this tell us then about the nature of idolatry? Why would they turn to the gods that were attacking them, or the people that were attacking them, the ones that made them so miserable? Well, this is ironic. That's the nature of idolatry. Sometimes what we fear, what we hate, we hate something so much, we fear something so much, that eventually we either give in to it or become just like it. It goes back to the definition of idolatry. What is idolatry? It's setting our hearts and our affections, our deepest affections on the things of this world. We give ourselves to created things. That can be, of course, the obvious would be money and power and sex, but there's also people, circumstances, vocation. These things serve as our greatest source of joy, of happiness, of hope of peace, of prosperity, right? So when we lose that, we're, we're consumed and racked with, with, with anxiety and fear. Or sometimes we'll do whatever it takes to gain something that we want. That's what idolatry is. But you know what? Sometimes fear and hate is a form of idolatry as well. Why is that? Because that created thing, that idol, consumes our thoughts and attention. And ultimately then, our affections. I was trying to think of a way to illustrate this. And uh, uh, all I could think of was a sports analogy. Uh, analogy. So I apologize. It will probably fall flat in this congregation. But 
I was thinking of a way to illustrate this. Someone who is consumed with the success or the failure of a rival team, right, evidences this type of behavior. They, they long for their rival to fail because they hate them so much. And so they end up following that team more closely than they'll even follow their own. And that team's failures end up being more joy to them than their own team's victories. We see this type of behavior. Maybe it's not idolatry, but we see it in other ways as well. I thought as well as, as of the of the classic romantic comedy, right? The, the single woman meets the man, and at first she's utterly despised with him, right? And they're they're sworn enemies, but by the end of the movie, they're they're brought together, right? That's the story, how it goes. You end up falling in love with that which you hated. It's because what she couldn't stand becomes the objects of her greatest attention, and ultimately that attention becomes the object of her greatest affection. We see this in politics as well. We see a particular candidate. People hate them so much that they end up becoming just like them, just on the other side of the aisle. The polar opposite. Different issues, but the same type of politician or behavior. My point here is that idolatry is, is not just things that we love, but idolatry also leads us to become and to subjugate ourselves even to things that we hate. Because ultimately, it's a matter of our affections. It's a matter of our attention. And so here with Israel, they're so fearful. They're so anxious. They're so worried about the power of the foreign nations around them with their gods. That's what keeps them up night and day. That's what serves the greatest attention in their lives that eventually you can't beat them, you join them. Eventually their hearts are given over to them. It's because their deepest affections were not on, directed to the Lord. Whatever commands our deepest affections and fears will ultimately consume us. So what happens with Israel here? After 45 years of peace, verse 7 reveals that ultimately it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. After a long period of undeserved peace, that simply just led to the deepest, most comprehensive idolatry yet. Because sin and idolatry within, the conflict within, still hadn't been dealt with. The last state ends up being worse than the first. Well, Israel's conflict with indwelling sin now leads to another very familiar conflict. A conflict with their covenant Lord. Conflict with their covenant Lord. That's our third observation here, our third point. Sometimes God repays sin with exactly what we deserve. Sometimes God repays sin with exactly what we deserve. I know that's rather obvious. But what do we see here in verse 7? The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines, into the hand of the Ammonites, and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. It says God's righteous anger was kindled. That's another way of saying 
He's furious. He burns with fury. And he breaks out and he gives Israel exactly what they deserve, which is ironically, in a twisted way, exactly what they wanted because they were already worshiping those gods anyway. They had turned to the gods of the Ammonites, turned to the gods of the Philistines, so God saw to it that their inward idolatry reflected outwardly as well. That what was true of them inside was true of them outside. Idolatry, which is slavery on the inside, turns into actual slavery on the outside. We saw this last week. We considered this uh, a similar point, that God's judgment often, sometimes, is to reward sin with more sin, to reward evil with more evil so that it consumes itself, to reward idolatry with more idolatry. And that's why it says here that, quote, God sold them. Think of the slave market here. That's what's going on. God sells them into the hand of another master. And what does that depict? Well, that means this other master can do with those people whatever they wanted to do. Israel is at the total mercy of their other master. And it's important here that we see this in relation to the covenant that God had made with Israel. As we think about what's being described here. Here's where uh, a couple of uh, key terms in this passage are very insightful. In verse 8, we see that the enemies of Israel crushed and oppressed them. It's not just a, 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 a word, a, a term, crushed, to, to kind of illustrate just how total it was. But the term is unique. It was only previously used to refer before to how God crushed Egypt in the Exodus. So now, instead of God crushing Israel's enemies, Israel is being crushed by God directing her enemies to them. It's a reversal of the Exodus. Then in verse 9, we read that the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah and Benjamin and Ephraim. Think about that. They crossed the Jordan to fight Israel. This also is anti-Exodus language. For in the Exodus, it was Israel at God's direction who crossed the Jordan to crush the idolatrous and sinful nations in God's holy land. Now the reverse is happening. It's the pagan Gentiles, the Canaanites, who under the sovereign hand of God were crossing the Jordan to punish evil in Israel. To rid the land, God's holy land, of wickedness. This is a stark and and sobering picture of what's going on here. Israel is in a deep conflict with their covenant Lord. And their covenant Lord is breaking out against them and bringing these covenant curses upon them. And He's undoing and He's reversing that covenant altogether. They're getting exactly what He warned them of. They're getting exactly what they deserved. And brethren... Again, this is insightful as we consider the nature of idolatry. Whatever it is in our life that functions as an idol, there comes a point 
where in God's judgment, He might give us over to it. If you live for money, for example, there will come a point in your life when you're consumed by money and it rules your life. If you give yourself to sexual immorality, which in the New Testament the Apostle Paul calls idolatry, eventually you're going to lose control. And you will be a total helpless slave to your passions. That's what Romans 1 is talking about when he talks about idolatry and sexual sin and homosexuality. God, in act of judgment, hands people over to the full-blown idolatry and the corruption that they really love and crave. And make no mistake about it, these idols will never fail to crush us in the end. Sometimes God repays sin with exactly what we deserve as an act of judgment. Well, all this then leads to the climax of this episode. We see another conflict arise. We've seen Israel's conflict with their own sin. We've seen Israel's conflict with their covenant Lord. We've seen Israel's conflict with the nations and the enemies around them. But here we see one last conflict. Conflict within Yahweh Himself. So forth and finally, what we see is the conflict between God's holiness and God's mercy that longs for a greater solution. A conflict between God's holiness and God's mercy that longs for a greater solution. We've read this script before, but in verse 9, excuse me, verse 10, after being severely distressed in verse 9, Israel cries out to the Lord for deliverance. Lord, save us. We can't handle it anymore. Like they've done so many times. What's interesting about this, verse 10 and even down uh, furthermore, down in verse uh, 16 as well, this is the first time in the book of Judges that they actually acknowledge their own sin. This is the first time in the book of Judges where they actually confess their own sin. This is the first time in the book of Judges where they actually put away the idols in that sense, following an acknowledgement of their own sin. And you know what? It's the only time in the book of Judges they do this as well. But we get another surprise here, another first, because every other time that Israel had cried out to the Lord, Yahweh had raised up a deliverer to save them. But how does God respond here? There's no deliverer. There's a rebuke. Verse 11 and verse 12, God says, Did I not save you from all these enemies before? Did I not answer the last times, all these times that you've cried out to me? And then verse 13 and 14, he says, Yet you have forsaken me. You've served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods you've chosen. Let them save you in the time of distress. This time, things are different, he says. This time, judgment's coming. Israel, you've made your bed. Now, you have to lie in it. You've chosen the religion of these idols Now you get to enjoy their impotence as well. 
This is, again, a reversing of the covenant. Abrahamic covenant. I will be your God and you shall be my people. He's saying, no, you don't belong to me anymore. You belong to these masters over here. It's their their duty now. It's their responsibility to save you. Don't come crying to me. That's a terrifying response. It should serve as a wake-up call to all of us. Whatever it is that you truly love in life, whatever it is that you give yourself to, you better hope that it can save you in the time of your need. Sadly, though, we often don't recognize this. We don't recognize the impotence of our idols until they're taken away from us. Until we fall into that desperate state of when we need them. Whether that be money or comfort or health or people or whatever it is. Those things can't save us in the end. That's why the Lord tells us, exhorts us to lay up treasure in heaven. There is something that cannot be taken away from you. Be careful about where you're putting your trust. I can help but think here of, you know, uh, I, I know this is distance. It's hard for us, distance, hard for us to maybe, um, it's hard for us maybe to identify with it. But you think of like uh, celebrities in Hollywood and you, think, you see them trying to hold on to youth and to beauty, right? Uh, to sex appeal, uh, to money. And, and they drift away, they shrivel away, and then they're on their deathbed and nobody wants to be around them anymore. They've got no hope. They're desperate. They're dying. And of course, they leave everything when they die. They can't take it with them. That's what idols do to us. They leave us broken and helpless and empty and without hope. God here kind of claps back at them. Go let them save you. And, and you know what? Israel got the message. They, they realize that they're in a predicament. They realize that these false gods can do them no good. And so they respond in verse 15. The people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. Once again, This sounds great. It sounds like they got the message. This sounds like true repentance. It sounds like the first and only time in this book where they're being honest about who they are. But, oh, you know, Lord, we sinned against you. We sinned against you. Do whatever seems good to you, but, 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 wait. Only deliver us this day. Sounds like repentance. It looks like repentance. We even see in verse 16 that they put away their foreign gods and served the Lord. But you know what? This is not repentance. This is not true repentance. Only deliver us this day. Israel is consumed with her present circumstances. What they really want is God to fix their situation. That's their ultimate concern. Save us, Lord, we're miserable. And so in this sense, we look at this and it's really a a form of subtle manipulation. 
It's approaching God as if he is a pagan idol in a transactional way. We do this, now you do this. Giving to get. It's obeying in order to merit mercy. It's like a battlefield conversion, right? The bullet starts flying, you're in your foxhole, you're fearful for your life, and the soldier makes that deal with God. Okay, Lord, if you just get me out of this, I'll do whatever you want. That's not true repentance. That's not reflected a true understanding of who God is. That doesn't reflect a true understanding of indwelling sin, of our debt that we owe to God, of the way, uh, uh, the reality that we can do nothing to please Him in our flesh. True repentance makes no demands. True repentance has nothing left to say except I have sinned. True repentance, or the, the one who is truly repentant, Romans chapter 3, their mouth is shut. They're not making excuses. They're not making demands. They're not trying to talk their way out of it. Their mouth is shut. Their head is down. They are guilty. I have sinned. And all they can say is, I will be done. Not mine. Israel hasn't come to grips with their sin. They haven't seen the grace of God either. And even in their repentance, they are practicing idolatry. Turning God into an idol that they can approach in a transactional way to appease Him and get what they want. Turning their circumstances into an idol. That's what they really want release from. Because God Himself wasn't enough. God Himself wasn't enough. And that's the question you must ask yourself, with, to ask yourself as well. Is God enough? Is God enough? And so how does Yahweh respond? Is there a solution to this here? Well, look at the last phrase, the end of verse 16, the closing refrain. God became impatient over the misery of Israel. This is what I referred to before as the conflict within Yahweh Himself. Now, properly speaking... There is no conflict within the being of God. Right? He's never in conflict with himself. Uh, uh, There is no shadow or turning of change with God. He is immutable. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But this is what we would call maybe uh, accommodated language. From our human, limited perspective, Yahweh appears to be in conflict. Because he appears to act like a conflicted man would act. So this is speaking of God's actions in human terms, even though he's properly not human in that sense. So so see here, God says in verse 13, I will save you no more, but you know what? The, The very next chapter, chapter 11, you know what he does? He raises up a judge to save them. He says one thing, but ends up doing another. So from our perspective, God is conflicted with what to do with His people. 
And this is where it all comes together as we look at this in light of the gospel, as we look at this in light of God's interactions with us as sinners, as humans, as people, as idolaters by nature. And what we should see from this is that Israel's repentance is not the cause that led Yahweh to deliver them. It's not Israel putting away their foreign gods that leads now to His mercy. Their repentance is not the cause of their salvation. Israel's hope is not in the intensity or the completeness of their repentance. Their only hope lies in the intensity of Yahweh's love and compassion for them. And the same is true for us. Our repentance is not the ground of our hope. Even our faith is not the ground of our hope. We don't have faith in faith. We have faith in God. We have faith in His mercy, that He is a compassionate God, that He is merciful to us, that He is forgiving. And that's what leads us to the cross of Jesus Christ. We see here this conflict between Israel's inherent sinfulness and this this holy God who cannot let sin go unpunished. If God keeps rescuing His people, where's His justice? But if God finally gives in to His people, then where's His mercy? Gives over His people, that is. Lets them go. Then where's His mercy? It's only at the cross where these things, this conflict is resolved because justice and judgment against sin is poured out upon Christ so that we, His people, may receive grace and mercy and forgiveness. Calvary then is the conflict of all conflicts. It is the cosmic conflict And and we look at it as, okay, God here is impatient over the misery of Israel. You know what? Out of His great love for us, He was impatient over our misery of sin as well. And that's why He sent His Son. And that's why Jesus came. And at the cross, holy war was unleashed upon His Son so that we might live. And on that basis then of the cross... His Holy Spirit is poured out upon us so that inward conflict of sin and idolatry is dealt with as well as we are being conformed to His image day by day. This is the greater solution that the story points us to. And it's pushing us into the arms of God so that we don't get caught up with our idolatry or even our repentance that we're pushed back upon the nature and character of God and His love for us, ultimately in Christ, as the ultimate solution, as the ultimate hope, as the ultimate end of all that conflict, because now we who are enemies of God through Christ have been brought near and are His friends. And if God has done this for us, how shall He not also freely give us all things. Brethren, may God give us the grace to 
put off sin and idolatry and to set our affections upon the Lord. That's why we're here, isn't it? Because we feel, Lord, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. I know as soon as I walk out those doors or even before, I'm going to be pulled and swayed to every casting care, care of this world, every temptation, every thought of doubt and fear and anxiety. Oh, brethren, put your affections upon the Lord as revealed in Jesus Christ. Seek His face Come to Him in faith and true repentance and belief. This is the ultimate solution to the greatest conflict that we will ever face in life or in eternity. Well, may God give us the grace to believe these things and to look to Him and the cross for His marvelous and unbelieving grace. Amen. Let's pray.